From those in the know to those who need to know, this is the Indie Weekly Podcast. Hey everyone, uh, this is Daryl Hers of Indie Week, and this is the Indie Weekly Podcast, a recording taken from our Indie Weekly sessions that happen every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's Toronto time, and they're free. Everybody online comes from all over the place, around the world, and we encourage you to be part of the community and join in. IndieWeek.com is where you get information on that. This session in particular is with Matt Gorman, entertainment lawyer, and we're talking about songwriting collaborations, agreements, and what you should know, what you shouldn't know, what should you do, what shouldn't you do, all the things that you need to know if you are looking to collaborate to protect yourself so that you're getting paid appropriately. So tune into this session. It's a great one. And just remember, all the information for upcoming sessions is at IndieWeek.com. Thanks, Daryl and Zach, for, for having me, and thanks uh, to everybody for joining. Um, my name is Matt Gorman, and I'm an inter- entertainment lawyer and based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, I've been a lawyer since 2012, and I started practicing law at sort of a full-service Atlantic uh, Canadian firm during, doing sort of general corporate commercial. Um, I have a music background myself. I've been playing drums and bands all my life and played piano and guitar, and I always thought when I became a lawyer, inevitably, it made sense that I would want to get get into entertainment law. It didn't really seem like something that was even possible, you know, being uh, based in Halifax on the East Coast. I didn't think there was enough to do, but um, boy, was I ever proven wrong when I when I started Ocean Town Music, which is uh, is my law firm, my music law firm that that um, uh, that focuses uh, specifically on uh, music law. Um, so that's a bit of my background, Daryl. I mean, I, I've also um, uh, co-owned, a, I also co-own a, a company called Jungle Music, um, group that sort of focuses on uh, management and fostering sort of uh, writers and producers in particular, um, you know, selling and leasing beats, all that kind of stuff, which is a fun new kind of venture that I really just got into the past sort of six to eight months or so. Um, and that's, that's, that's a little bit about my, uh, my background. I don't know if you want to know anything else or if that's a good, or if that's sort of a, a good start. That, that's perfect. Uh, okay. Thank you. And, and, uh, I think it was a January music meeting in uh, Winnipeg where we yeah. were years ago. Uh, the, the perfect climate to be in, in uh, Winnipeg, right? In January yeah. music month or whatever it was. Yeah. No, I spoke about uh, band agreements, I think, at that um, event. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, weather aside, it was, a, it was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yeah, that was great. Especially that yeah. dinner that we had was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's jump in and and I think like to start off, uh, you know, really we're talking kind of like about copyrights. If you could maybe sort of defi- give a definition there, because there's some different types of copyrights to be aware of. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think that's a good place to start. You know, if we're going to be talking about co-writer agreements and writing songs and all that kind of stuff, I mean, the best place to start, I think, is to clarify that we're really talking about the musical work copyright, the, the composition copyright. That's you know sort of the melody, the words, uh, chord progression, instrumentation. Um, that's really what we're, that's the copyright that we're talking about here today. Not so much maybe, you know, maybe indirectly we'll get into the sound recording, um, but that's to be distinguished from the sound recording copyright, which embodies the, the musical work, the composition. Um, and so again, yeah, when we're talking about you know, co-writing songs and co-writer agreements and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about 
that musical work copyright, which is a copyright protected under the uh, the Canadian um, uh, Copyright Act. Um, it, you know, I always look at uh, this is kind of a lawyerly thing to say, but I always look at you know copyright as it's a business asset. Um, yeah, it's a you know a song is a beautiful thing that can happen you know sort of with uh, either by yourself or with a few co-writers or or whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a business asset that can earn uh, a songwriter money for years and years and years to come. Um, you know, especially if, uh, if you know if you bec- if you become performer yourself and you sign a big record contract and you know you, you sell a lot of um, records, you're also going to be uh, paid on the back end as a songwriter. Or if someone covers your song or or cuts it or or whatever, um, as you know, songwriters can generate significant revenue for you know really um, the rest of their life if if they write a really great song. So I look at that sound come full circle. I look at that sound record that um, musical work copyright as as a business asset and people should protect it and people should um you know make sure they've got a handle on on um uh make sure they have a handle on it absolutely especially like we've seen a lot of artists uh, and songwriters these days selling off their publishing rights and their catalog uh you know it's that where you keep writing keep writing and uh, over years you've built up this massive library and that's value yeah no absolutely i I, i'm not typically a part of those you know very very huge publishing sort of acquisition deals but understand that you know they they pay in the millions and millions and millions depending on um the the royalties um and you know that those songwriters generate um you know a third-party company will will look at that and and you know they'll typically pay a multiple depending on the revenue that's coming in and you know you're, you're seeing sort of big names kind of sell off their publishing and you know, going to buy some beachfront property and just hang out the rest of their life, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, if there's one tip I, I've always tried to tell artists is just keep writing and, and you never know. And, and you know, building that catalog, it, it does give value. And, and I know in uh, some cases, artists who are trying to negotiate record deals, uh, one of the first questions is, what else do you have? Do you have more? Uh, what else? What, what do you got? And And so... Keep writing. That's that's the biggest thing. Um, yeah. Now with that, we're talking collaborations, of course. So give us some different types of scenarios, um, you know, song camps or co-writing band members. Maybe if we could just identify some different ways co-writing may come about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, you hit one right there. You, you see a lot of uh, songwriters going to song camps. Um, you know, obviously you're, you're hooking up with one, two, three songwriters or more to, um, you know, specifically to work together in a room. Um, other times, you know, we all know in our local scene, you know, there are some songwriters who like to write with each other and they, you know, go wherever, someone's basement, someone's living room, they get together and maybe it's, um, you, know, it, you know, probably an organic kind of process, but that's another way that folks do it. Um, obviously in a band scenario, and it could be in a scenario where there's say a, a three or four or five piece band and, you know, um, the band could, you know, collectively be writing the songs together, but that's, you know, that's something that bands should talk about. That's, that's not the case in every band scenario, you know, like I understand, you know, like REM and the Peppers over, over the course of their career, I think they've split everything, you know, even Steven, you know, even though, um, you know, one uh, writer probably brought a little bit more to the table than others, but some bands decide to do it. Other bands don't. And I have clients um, that decide to do it a sort of, you know, a different way. Um, and something that's popping up more and more, I guess, in my practice, and I do a lot of work um, in the R&B and hip hop space, 
is um, producers that get involved in producing, you know, R&B and hip hop tr- tracks um, typically themselves are, are more and more wanting to get, you know, publishing or, or songwriting for the tracks that they um, produce. You know, if, if the producer is coming to the table with a beat, for example, that, that they've done and, and the hip hop artist, for example, is, is um, you know, laying a vocal performance on top of that. It's not super uncommon, um, you know, that um, that the producer and, and the artist may split publishing 50-50 even. Um, sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. A um, whole lot of different reasons or, or considerations, I think, to, um, to think about before you finalize that. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, you know, really you got to think about whether someone made a material uh, contribution to the track. Um, you know, I've had some clients and songwriters approach me and say, you know, I really, really like working with so-and-so and they didn't really write the song, but I feel like just throwing them 20% or 50% or whatever. And I say, well, sure, I guess if you want to, but, you know, did they make a material contribution to the composition? Well, not really. So I, I guess, you know, that each, each to their own, but I mean, the, the legal test generally in Canada is, you know, a, a material uh, contribution um, to the track and furtherance of the common design. And, um, you know, sometimes some courts have held that you have to actually have um, an intention of being a co-writer. So two people need to sit down and actually intend that the other is going to be a co-writer. Um, that's sort of an open question in Canada. But that's sort of the legal test, but how it happens in practice is sort of all over the map. But to come back to your question, Daryl, those are kind of the, the different scenarios I can kind of think of off the top of my head where you get into that scenario where you're co-writing. And it happens all the time. I feel like people, especially during COVID, are are uh, co-writing more and more and more, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, um, via Zoom or, or whatever, even during COVID, um, I, I found there were a lot of people writing. And I feel like during COVID, a lot of people are getting into production work as well, where now they're starting to maybe become songwriter, but, you know, with that production, wearing that sort of production hat, as opposed to that more traditional kind of um, uh, songwriting kind of uh, hat, so to speak. <laughs> Screen by Screen Music and Tech online conference happening February 2022. Passes and tickets are on sale at super early bird pricing. So check it out. Save now at screenbyscreen.com. Does that all make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you're actually reminding me of a story of a, a friend of mine, a, a songwriter that this goes back a little bit uh, when American Idol was first out and, um, you know, he, he was at the time, I think, 46 years old and was focusing on songwriting. And he would go to New York one weekend to just co-write. A couple weeks later, go to Nashville to co-write and just ping pong between both those cities. But just writing and looking for anybody to, to write with. And um, one track ended up actually being on... Uh, Kimberly Locke's debut album and she came in third on the first American Idol and um, it was a dance track called uh, Eighth World Wonder and it broke all dance records like charting and all this stuff it was crazy and uh, and it was funny because he called me frantically one day he's like I need help I need to get some PR I need to do an angle story get me on entertainment tonight and all that kind of stuff and so we were able to do a bit of a press run around it. And uh, he ended up with a universal publishing deal offer within a week. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where if things kind of start taking off, everybody wants to know who wrote that song. All of a sudden you're like this hot commodity. Yeah. 
And the funny part is, is he, he tells me to look it up and he goes, see that there's three names on there. There's only two of us that wrote it. The other one was just in the room and just yeah. being in the room, they got 30%. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. I've heard that, that um, in certain musical circles, um, you know, I think we know the ones where just being in the room, uh, they say, you know, that entitles you to, to songwriting and, you know, Maybe that's the maybe that's the case sort of um, anecdotally in certain circles, but um, you know I, that's not necessarily material contribution to the track if you're just sort of hanging out, you know, sitting down drinking coffee. But you know, um, yeah, I've I've heard it, it fairly common that if somebody's in the room, they get a percentage. So no, if nobody's if somebody's not contributing, get them out of the room. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, that's and probably wise. Yeah, and that I know that that track. So she went and ended up performing on every daytime talk show, every nighttime talk show, and that's also another royalty claim there. And she, when she sang it on American Idol, four million people tuned in. And I know uh, Joel's cut from that was estimated at seventy five thousand dollars just for that one performance. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so for just being in the room, uh, that person was doing all right. Yeah, well, no, absolutely. And, and Daryl, I mean, to that story, and, and I'm just looking at some of the, the, the questions here as well. I don't mean to sort of jump the gun, but what you're kind of reminding me of in this question as well is sort of how do you split songs? I mean, and talking about, you know, does just showing up in the room, you know, entitle you? I mean, in some circles, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, but, um, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before was, you know, if we're talking about a strict sort of legal test, it really comes down to a material um, contribution to the song. Um, there's no rhyme or reason really, I find, as to uh, whether a track should be split 50-50 or 75-25 or whatever, but it's really something the parties need to work out. Um, you know, one kind of formula that's been around for a while is that, you know, the lyricist gets 50% and, you know, the, the writers of, of the music, so to speak, are getting the other 50%. And so I've been in, you know, some, um, you know, hip hop examples, for example, you know, where maybe there's one lyricist and there's maybe two producers on the beat, you know, so maybe, you know, um, 50% of the musical work copyright goes to the artist and uh, the other 50% is being split, um, you know, between the other two producers who only uh, participated in the beat itself. I mean, that's one way to do it. Um, we also talked about, you know, band scenarios where you could do it equally you know, and forget sort of who wrote the lyrics and who wrote, you know, the main hook or whatever, you know, some, you know, maybe that's the secret, maybe that's sort of a secret to some band's longevity and success is that you're, you're just splitting things kind of equally and, and, uh, and um, if that works for you, great. But, it, you know, uh, again, I, I see some bands do it, other bands, I see do it a different way. Um, so lots of different ways that you can split songs. Um, I find you know, like in songwriting circles or, you know, um, song camps and Zoom sessions, if it's say like two writers, typically it's a 50-50 type scenario because, you know, especially if you're writing with someone that you're comfortable with and you're doing it all the time, um, there's, a, there's a sort of flow there and a connection that warrants that sort of 50-50 um, split. So that's, you know, so that I, I just like the question that popped up about, you know, splitting songs. So that's kind of generally a few different ways of doing it. But at the end of the day, I think songwriters just need to talk about it before they get into the room um, whether that's with a split sheet or whether that's in a more formal kind of agreement. Um, songwriters just need to talk about it because I've had a lot of files lately, I feel like in the last year or two, especially where there's, you know, where folks write a song, it's generating some income 
and no one really agreed on the, on the split. And, you know, maybe someone's saying 50-50 and maybe the other saying, you know, no way is that person getting 50%. They only, you know, wrote this lyric or they only sort of wrote that verse and I did everything else. And so you can get into some ugly disputes that are, that can be avoided if you just have those conversations up front. I, I feel like most lawyers uh, will, will, will tell you the same thing, but I do understand practically sometimes these things happen after the fact. And um, sometimes, you know, practically it's hard to do, but, you know, for those songwriters that are out there, um, listening to this, I, I'd strongly advise that you just have those chats up front. Yeah, and, and do you recommend like um, having like some sort of, you know, template contract ready to go or an agreement, uh, you know, fill in the gaps, blanks of percentages and names and things like that? Exactly. Like, um, you know, you, you can get split sheets kind of everywhere. Like split sheets are normally those sort of one page type documents that sort of just go through the, you know, percentage um, uh, copyright split of the, the musical work. You know, um, you see a million different templates and forms, but typically it will have, you know, the individual names, um, the percentage split, you know, their IPI number, you know, whether affiliated with SOCAN, um, you know, or, or um, ASCAP or BMI in the States or whatever. Um, whether they have a publisher, which is, you know, relevant information, all that kind of stuff. So you see a lot of people carry around sort of that one page split, uh, split sheet. Um, other times, some songwriters uh, take it a little bit more seriously and want to do sort of a more fulsome uh, co-writer agreement, which is, you know, a little bit longer and covers off, um, you know, a whole lot of other terms that a split sheet won't cover off. A split sheet really just talks about splits only, whereas a co-writer agreement, if you're so inclined you know, deals with a whole lot of other kind of sections and provisions that, you know, maybe now or, or, or later on, Daryl, we can get into that. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, have that chat up front and at a minimum have a split sheet. That's normally what I tell folks is that's, that's, that's the minimum, I think, requirement. <clears throat> yeah, I've seen it in sessions where like that's the start before any, any conversation of songwriting happens. It's like I've seen people like open the guitar case. They've got their stack of sheets and just hand it and say, okay, let's take care yeah. of business bam, bam, bam. Cool. Let's start writing. And, and, and just makes it really easy. Uh, and also it gives that sort of like professionalism to it uh, up front where, you know, the, the funny part is I actually see, seen them where the songwriter sessions actually go better because they feel, okay, this is legit as opposed to just yeah. having fun. I was, I was thinking the same thing, Daryl. Um, you know, I, um, I play guitar, but I'm not a <laughs> A songwriter but if i was and i was going to zoom sessions and all you know or, or physical sessions i guess now um you know you can kind of forget about it um whereas you know if you've maybe been burned in the past and you know if you're if you're songwriting during the middle of a session you don't want to be thinking about sort of the business stuff you don't want to be thinking about oh is that person getting 50 am i getting 50 should it be different um i, I i'd like to think that if you just do it up front get it over with to your point daryl not only do you come across as professional but you can kind of like forget about it and just enjoy the writing process. Um, if that's if that's something that you'd be worried about to begin with, I guess. Absolutely. There's a couple of questions. Uh, I just noticed uh, uh, Anna said over Zoom, how do you actually get a signature? So, yeah, I mean, pretty good question. I mean, um, and I I should have like we're I don't know we're like 24 minutes into this, and I should have said this right out of the gate. Um, but uh, but this is not intended to be legal advice. Um, uh, that's the lawyerly kind of disclaimer that that lawyers will always throw out there. I don't think anyone typically intends these things to be legal advice, but in case anyone's wondering, I'm not here offering legal advice. We're just having high level chat and I'm offering some legal information. 
Um, but yeah, I, I noticed that question. It's a good one. I mean, from a practical perspective, even an email exchange is better than nothing, number one. And then number two, everyone's got DocuSign. So just get DocuSign and do it that way if you really need to. Um, a lot of my clients sign their contracts. You know, I've had clients sign publishing deals and record contracts on their phone. And that's that's totally fine. Um, you know, my law firm operates that way. Other bigger law firms in Canada and the U.S. operate that way as well, uh, or at least tend to these days. So, you know, um, DocuSign, sign digitally, that's, I think that all that all works. Um, but I think the the main thing is that there's something there that shows that the parties talked about it. And uh, there was some sort of, I guess, meeting of the minds as to what, you know, the percentage uh, is going to be. Yeah. And, and there's another question here just to follow up is, um, uh, is there anywhere where we can get the split sheet templates? And I believe like you just go through SOCAN or whichever. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a million out there, honestly. Um, I'm, I'm always reluctant to say just Google and get a template because I, you can never speak for how, the, you know, how good templates are or not. Um, if folks want to email me or they can, um, you know, follow me on Instagram, DM me, and I'll send them my, uh, my split sheet. If, if uh, folks can't find a good one, I'll, I'll send mine. So just reach out on Instagram, um, uh, DM me and give me your email address and I'll, I'll get back to you. Excellent. Yeah. And, and that'll like, be $500 each one, by the way, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, and also like, uh, you could always talk to SoCan or, or anything like that as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, SoCan's there. They're really, they're really great support, um, for, for artists, for sure. Songwriters. Excellent. Um, and thanks Zach. I, he just shared the creators uh, toolbox there. That's great. Yeah. Zach's always on the links. <laughs> so, so um, what other pitfalls do you sort of warn artists or, or songwriters when going into these? Like how, what are the other areas that they need to be aware of? Like, um, cause like sometimes people dispute and then it becomes a legal battle. Like, does that potentially delay the release of the recording and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly could, um, Daryl, if, you know, and I've dealt with files, um, you know, especially the past few years where there are um, co-writer disputes and, and, you know, there's lawyers retained on each side and there's some back and forth as to what, you know, the intent was and all that kind of stuff. And, and ultimately, you know, we end up doing a co-writer agreement, which is, you know, maybe something a lot of other um, songwriters proactively do. Um, it just, you know, in those situations that just end up ugly and more often than not, they don't, but, but certainly it is possible that they end up ugly and there's disagreement about um, the splits. Yeah. When lawyers get involved, it, it's more costly for the parties. It, you know, relationships are strained. Normally by the end of it, things can get a little bit ugly. Um, you know, it could hold up the process, you know? So for example, you know, if I'm working on a record for, you know, um, a folk artist or a rock artist or hip hop artist that's releasing a record and there are some producers there and, um, you know, there's some dispute about, you know, this is after the thing's been, you know, mixed, mastered, recorded, produced and everything <clears throat> before release. There's then disagreement about, um, you know, what the split should be. That's just not, that's just not an argument you want to have leading up to the release. People get annoyed. It costs more money. The label gets annoyed, um, all that kind of stuff. And um, so, so it can, it can turn ugly quick, especially if there's, you know, if there's good money on the table or, if you're working with an artist that's expected to generate really good money and has a history of doing so. 
um, because folks have to, you know, and I know this isn't a session on royalties and maybe we can do that another time where I know Daryl, you've done a few of those in the past that, that people can, um, that people can look up. <clears throat> but if you're, you know, if you're a songwriter, just purely a songwriter, and we're talking about the musical work uh, copyright, you know, everyone's familiar with, you know, public performance income that you can receive as an artist on the back end for, you know, the public performance of your, your composition. There's also, you know, mechanical royalties. Um, there's also synchronization fees. You know, I've done deals with artists um, and songwriters for sync deals that are nothing all the way to, you know, $50,000 US. Um, it, you know, it can, it can generate a significant amount of, of revenue and, and, um, and money. So all the more reason to kind of get all this stuff lined up up front. Um, that's another, I guess, uh, to your question, Daryl, about pitfalls, aside from maybe holding up a recording or something like that. Um, you know, a, a good thing about a co-author agreement is um, there's confirmation, not just on splits, but on administration of the track. And so, for example, you could do a split sheet that say says that two author, uh, two songwriters, um, you know, share the the musical work copyright 50-50. But if um, say a music supervisor contacts one writer and says, "Hey, we want to use this song for you know new Netflix X documentary, whatever it's going to be. We want to use that track." Well, you need to get the signature of both parties. And if one is sort of off traveling or is a low profile kind of person. Um, and she just can't be reached or whatever the case might be, well, you might lose out on that opportunity. Um, so typically, not always, but sometimes, for example, if you know, you've got co-writers, one is sort of maybe the main performer who's the one who's actually gonna release a record, for example, the other is maybe just a, a songwriter that hooks up with that performer quite frequently. Oftentimes in a co-writer agreement, um, you might see that songwriter um, assign their administration rights to their share to that other person. So that other person and their publisher, for example, could be the one-stop shop for that track. And so um, sometimes that's appropriate, sometimes it's not. But um, to your question about the pitfalls, I've seen sometimes that, um, you know, sync deals can be lost. Um, or in some instances, when say you've got like, I'm not kidding, like seven songwriters, <laughs> If administration rights have not been given to one sole party, I'm sorry, but all seven signatures are going to have to be on that sync deal. Um, that's my view, and that's really, I think, the view of, of most um, companies that I've dealt with, at least in my practice. So that's sort of one thing that folks should be mindful of, that a split sheet is great. But I mentioned earlier, Daryl, there's a split sheet that only covers splits. You know, a, a co-writer agreement can cover a whole bunch of other things and maybe avoid some of those pitfalls. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you actually kind of answered the next question I was going to ask about the sync side of things, because yeah. it brings up a story. Uh, years ago, we had John Densmore, the drummer of The Doors, speak for us at Indie Week. Nice. And one of the things he's known for, he's actually written a book about it. He took the, his band, The Doors, to court because they were offered a sync deal with a, an, basically a, a car company. Uh, they wanted a Doors song in car ads. And out of three surviving members, he voted no. And they only had a hand handshake agreement. And, and so where the gray area was is uh, there's one person, Jim Morrison, that's no longer with us that doesn't have a voice 
And uh, John Densmore said no, based on the fact that he believed Jim Morrison would not agree to have his music in a car commercial. And right. it, was, it was worth millions of dollars. So the other surviving members were like, we want the millions. And he's like, Jim would never go for this. So I can't say yes. So it ended up being a, a court deal and he's written a book about it. Yeah, no. Um, if, yeah, familiar, familiar with that uh, um, case. And, and and yeah, I mean, that that sort of stuff can that sort of stuff can happen. And it, I mean, where my mind's going, you can go in like five different places right now because there's a lot to talk about. But just, you know, on, on the, the sync deal front and talking about co-writer agreements and administration rights, you know, you raise a good point with that is, you know, one co-writer might assign their administration rights to the other um, to the other writer. Um, but um, you know, moral rights uh, becomes you know a, a consideration or an issue as well. And you know, moral rights um, is is essentially um, you know the songwriter's right to the integrity of the work. And sometimes you know you you see uh, people sign contracts and they they um, you know they waive their moral rights. Maybe they're signing a contract with a publisher or something, you know, which is really you know the publisher's way of saying, well, you're waiving your your right to integrity of the work. This allows me to say, you know, pitch your song and, you know, a, a certain TV commercial or whatever. And you're not going to come back after the fact and say that you violated, uh, you know, uh, my moral, uh, you know, my moral rights. Um, that's a consideration as well. So if you're, you know, a songwriter and you really, really care about how your song is getting placed. I know uh, Bonnie Bear, for example, is um, is really diligent about, you know, where his songs are placed. Um uh, you know, he wants to know exactly down to the second where it's placed in a TV show or a movie or whatever. Um, um, make sure you, you work that into the agreement that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you're assigning administration rights to the other party. But, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, placements for ads, um, you know, for hygiene products or maybe when it comes to, um, you know, uh, TV shows or movies um, in a placement that has, you know, violence or or sexual violence or use of tobacco, drugs, whatever. Well, that requires my written approval and sign off, and that's sort of a common thing that some songwriters work into sort of a more fulsome um, co-writer agreement, which again is the kind of level of detail that you wouldn't get into with a split sheet. But that that becomes sort of a live issue. You know, if you're a songwriter, um, you may really, really care about your work. You really, you likely very much do. Uh, so you likely very care, you, you very much care about where that's getting placed. And, you know, I've had those examples, Daryl, where, you know, there's, there's a good amount of money on the table for a placement. And that artist is like, no, nope, not interested. You know, don't want my music associated, don't want my song associated with that company. or don't want my, my song associated with, you know, that movie or don't want it placed in that particular scene because I'm not comfortable with that. Or that's a triggering thing that, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know about me. I have an issue uh, with that particular type of activity from my past. I don't want it placed there. And they say no. I say okay, done. No. <laughs> um, so lot, yeah, lots, lots to to think about for for songwriters. And um, yeah, hopefully that little ramble made sense and answered some questions that people may have had about syncs. Yeah, it, it's you, you know kind of backing it up a bit. You know when when you walk into the room to do a collab, it's you're kind of focused on that moment and not thinking, oh, in two years this is what could happen. And and you know, part of what you said before is like when there's money involved and now it gets serious, all of a sudden that's where people are like, well, where's my cut? And, and it, it just gets ugly a lot of times. So uh, yeah, I'm going to put well, you a bit more on the spot. If you can share a story that you might have of, of an artist where it, it did get ugly and how did they resolve it? 
Yeah, well, maybe before I do, Daryl, just because it's distracting me, this uh, not distracting me in a good way, this question off to the right, maybe I can uh, deal with it. Can a producer clear both sides, um, uh, master um, and publishing? Um, I think it goes back to maybe what we talked about right at, right at the gate, uh, which is that when we're talking about uh, songwriting, we're talking about the, the musical work copyright, the composition. There's obviously a, a separate copyright in the sound recording. And when a song is synced, um, as a lot of people uh, maybe know, you need two rights, you need two clearances, you need the, the sync right, you need um, the right to reproduce the song in the TV show, the film, what have you. But if you're using that recording as well, you also need a master use license to clear that. And so I guess with respect to your question, um, it really depends on who owns what. So if that you know songwriter maybe also uh, recorded their own record, you know maybe they own both the song 100% and maybe they own the sound recording 100%. Well, guess what? They're a one-stop shop and they can you know sign for that sync. They can sign the master use license. They're good to go. But you know other times that um, songwriter. Um, may have signed maybe with a record label or something and maybe that record label owns the sound recording in which case um, you would need sign off from the record label for master use and maybe you'll still be able to sign off on the sync the, the composition piece but it really depends on on uh, who owns what but can a producer clear both well again it depends on uh, what rights the producer has um, the producer may be a 50 percent owner of the composition um, in which case they would have to sign along with the other songwriter for the sync side. Um, you know, oftentimes a producer does not own the master. Normally, if you hire um, a, a producer, they're, they're doing pr uh, production services, um, but it's more or less sort of a, a work for hire type situation. We often hear that language um, baked into contracts, um, but it's, it's the artist that either maintains a sound recording copyright or it's the record label. So um, really depends on who owns what. Um, but you need, um, you know, the party that owns the, the song and you need the party that owns the, uh, the rights with respect to the sound recording to do the same. Um, hopefully that made sense for everybody. Um, so back to your question about horror stories, I guess. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, not too many, like, I mean, normally they, they always get resolved is the good thing. I think in my case, I've had a number of files that have turned ugly where there's disagreement about use of the song. Um, I've had a number of situations, again, I, I, I raised the example earlier where um, there was a producer involved, um, you know, that didn't sign off yet on, you know, um, their share of the, the musical composition. Um, I've had other situations where producers have held back stems, um, totally, totally, you know, not a cool situation where, you know, they've been paid um, but nothing, you know, the other aspect of the deal wasn't finalized. Um, things get ugly really quick when, you know, when you're holding up sort of stems and the artists can't even access, um, you know, the, the, the masters. Um, and so examples of that, uh, again, we were talking about sync, where uh, synchronization licenses have been lost for, you know, good amounts of money for no other good reason other than the fact they just couldn't get a hold of people. Um, so it's really kind of a spectrum of problems and issues that arise that again, could all uh, very likely um, be mitigated or addressed with just some discussions upfront about, you know, um, who owns what and who has the right to pitch is someone one-stop shop. And if not, um, you know, sometimes, for example, in co-writer agreements, um, you know, one co-writer is good to assign their administration rights to the other party. Um, 
but, um, or sorry, uh, sometimes one party doesn't assign administration rights to the other party, but what's baked into the, to the clause is, well, if I don't say yes or no within X number of business days, um, I'm automatically giving you my approval to do so. Um, and so sometimes that's a middle ground for some songwriters, but again, if it's a sync where, where music supervisor or someone wants an answer right away, even if that's, that's three business days or five business days or whatever it is, sometimes that's, um, that's too long. So having, having said all that, dealt with lots of problems, ends up costing more um, strange relationships, um, may delay a release, um, causes a whole lot of stress that can really be avoided by a little bit of front-end thinking and um, uh, yeah, a little bit of thought as to uh, who's getting what with respect to the song. Yeah, and you know, it's it's uh, some of the stuff that you said really resonates in in that. Um, now, this is a bit about the sync kind of side of things, I know, but uh, music supervisors want answers. They don't want to delay. Basically, if they're interested in a song, they want a yes or a no, and they know that there's a thousand other songs they could pick instead. So if there anything's holding it up, there could easily be lost uh, opportunities just that quickly, just because of communication. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, generally speaking, in in um, in sync deals, I find there is a window to talk about things, but there's other instances where you can tell right away based on the email that that they need answers right away, and so you kind of know right out of the gate whether this is something that needs you know yesterday's attention kind of thing or you know, whether you've got a few days to kind of figure this out. But, um, but again, if you got all the, the paperwork and, and um, things aligned up front, um, it's, it's just a, a whole lot less uh, hassle um, that you need to go through. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's it exactly. Is if you've got all the answers already in place, then you know you could say yes and, and uh, move on quickly. Uh, yeah, because those, no, those deals disappear really quickly. Uh, I've had some where it's like, we need to know by noon and it's like 10 a.m. Uh, and they're like, send us five songs. We're picking one and going with that. And yeah. I, had to, I had to send five songs that everybody could say yes to immediately because they just they just wanted to hear the five and pick the one and, and submit it and go. So uh, yeah. that's, that's how fast they go. No, absolutely. <laughs> Super Early Bird passes and tickets are on sale for Indie Week 2022. If you're in the music business looking to get a level up in your career, make connections, hear from music industry professionals, this is the online conference for you. Super Early Bird passes are on sale now. Just go to IndieWeek.com for more information. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, the that's where it's like a, having a publishing administrator Sometimes it's like you're giving them, you kind of have faith in someone else to represent your music where they can say yes on your behalf, regardless. Uh, it's already yeah. clear, ready to go and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, um, you know, certainly, you know, songwriters, if, if they've gained some momentum, um, you know, will attract the interest of, um, you know, a, a publisher, whether that's, you know, just a publishing administrator, um, or whether, you know, that looks like a, a more kind of fulsome um, publisher that has, you know, takes on sort of an A&R role or what have you, um, you sign a publishing deal and, and typically you're, you know, you're assigning um, that administration, right, to that publisher to deal with your respective share of the composition on your behalf. Um, 
certainly can get into a whole lot of other issues and, and points with publishing agreements, but maybe we'll just uh, leave it at that. I've given uh, folks my, my email and Instagram if people want to get into um, you know, any aspect of publishing deals. Everyone's you know, welcome to, to reach out to me and we can, we can talk through that. Because song, songwriting and publishing really, uh, when I first started getting into the business, and again, I've been I've been a musician all my life, but I I never even as a you know drummer playing in bands, doing some touring, whatever. I didn't really think about publishing or the business side really until much much later in life. But I really find, you know, when you have conversations even with established musicians and songwriters, it's publishing that really tends to throw people off a little bit. It's one of those mysterious type things where people know it's important. They've all heard of SoCan. Um, they know publishing can make money and all that kind of stuff, but they're just not totally putting um, the pieces together. And, and so us talking about, you know, songwriting agreements and getting the paperwork up front, that's sort of one step to kind of, you know, um, you know, getting your house in order, so to speak, and getting things lined up from the beginning such that if, you know, you do attract the interest of a publisher down the road, they've got a clear idea about, you know, what you own. Okay, great. You've got co-writer agreements here. Um, you know, this person gave you administration rights, therefore you're able to assign, you know, these rights to, to us as publisher, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, getting stuff organized up front is always going to pay dividends down the road, especially as you gain momentum. And as your business, your music business becomes a little bit more complex, maybe with, you know, music publishers down the road. Yeah. And so I, I, when, as you were talking, I was sort of thinking then, what about retroactive? So for instance, let's say you know, song was created two years ago amongst three co-writes or songwriters, sorry, but they didn't really talk about it then and they want to talk about it now. Uh, what's, what are some best ways to A, bring it up and, and start approaching it uh, when there was an agreement or even a discussion before, but, but they want to open up those conversations now? Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I, I guess depending on, you know, the facts of that scenario could dictate how messy it could get. Like, so for example, if there were three songwriters involved in writing a song, let's just say one was business savvy and the other two weren't. And let's just say, you know, one of them, um, you know, registered uh, with a, a performing rights organization, you know, that they're a hundred percent owner of that composition. And they've been getting say performance royalties from day one, and let's just say, you know, they've done some sync deals or whatever, and say these two other people have been cut out of the equation completely. I mean, if that's the scenario that could get, you know, pretty, pretty hairy, I think. And then I think those three individuals would, would need to have some pretty uh, serious conversations potentially about maybe some, um, some retro retroactive pay from that individual that's, that's essentially been getting, you know, 100% of publishing revenue even though maybe it uh, should have been split three ways from, from day one. Um, that could certainly be a, um, you know, a, a serious type of issue in which maybe I can see some lawyers getting involved there and trying to work out some sort of uh, uh, settlement or maybe some, you know, a payment over, you know, a period of months or years, depending on how much money has come in and depending on how much that say, you know, one songwriter maybe owes to the other, you know, the other two never quite been involved in a scenario quite like that, but, I could uh, I could imagine that I could get uh, I could get pretty messy. Yeah, I, I just figured that there's probably tons of indie bands, emerging artists that have written songs but don't have it really on paper how the splits are. Um, yeah, 
And if they're approached for a record deal now, it's like, oh, we got to look at what we've had as bad. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And maybe where my head went was to the worst case scenario, worst case litigation type uh, scenario is, is one devious band member sort of cheating the other two out of royalties or something. But in, in, a, in, a, in another scenario where maybe all three haven't done anything, um, you know, my understanding is that, um, you know, so can will pay retroactively um, on the performance side. It's never too, and I, I guess along the short of it is it's never too late to get things in order. Um, if you release something a few years ago, um, you're just hearing about, you know, SOCAN now, you're maybe just hearing about, you know, CMRA on the mechanical side now, which again falls within the umbrella of music publishing. Um, and again, mechanical royalties are generated through um, exploitation of, of the song. So we're still, you know, going back to the very beginning, we're still in the wheelhouse of song copyright, you know, performance royalties, mechanical royalties. It's never too late to go back. Um, uh, it's never too late to register now even if um, you've released uh, music and it's been generating money for the last few years, but those societies in particular will be able to, um, you know, retroactively um, collect. <clears throat> and and um, I've contacted SOCAN and CMRA, my, like that, you know, they're great to, to call and chat with. If you've got any questions about this stuff, obviously feel free to reach out to me, um, but feel free to pick up the phone and call SOCAN or CMRA if you have questions about, you know, how to register songs with SOCAN or you want to create your own publishing entity with uh, SOCAN or, um, you know, you're not quite sure what mechanical royalties are and you want to um, chat with CMRA and all that kind of stuff. Those those um, organizations are, are there. And I've been pretty impressed over the last number of years with, you know, how willing they are to pick up the phone and, and chat with you for a little while if you have a question about it. Awesome. And uh, I just want, there's one question I believe that was submitted. Um, when registering, but uh, if I co-write a song, can someone else change the melody or lyrics? Um, no, generally speaking, not. If you're if you've co-written a song with somebody else, and you each you know jointly own that song, um, you know you each jointly own the entire song. You know you don't just own the piece that you wrote. Generally speaking, unless you've got an agreement to the contrary. But you you generally jointly own 50 50 of the entire song itself and without um the you know the approval or consent of the other co-writer you can't just alter the words um or the melody or or the structure um you know without you know without um you know approval generally speaking um uh you know and and some you know that, that makes me think you know sometimes um, you'll see this in publishing agreements where, you know, maybe a songwriter will sign a publishing agreement. Um, you know, the publisher may want the right, you know, to maybe translate um, the song. For example, they may want the right to make alterations, maybe take snippets of the song and all that kind of stuff. Maybe publishers might want that right um, for the purposes of, of pitching and exploiting um, the work itself. Uh, but when it comes to co-writers, really, the um, I think the, the key theme here is you really need um, consent of the other um, to to deal with that work, to license that work, um, and especially to uh, to to change it. Awesome. Um, yeah, and another question just came in: uh, Do you register to PROs even if you only have one song? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Um, I was uh, I was thinking of the exception if you're a publishing company to, to to register a publishing entity with SoCan. I think you need to show that you've 
you know, you own or control the, the publisher's share of, I think, of at least five songs. But if you're just an individual and you say wrote one hit, killer banger, yeah, <laughs> you register that, you know, your share with, with SoCan and um, who knows, maybe you only need to write one and you're good to go for, you know, for the rest of your life if it's a, if it's a big hit. Um, but yeah, register, register, register. Um, as a songwriter, you, you need to do that. I know this goes, you know, beyond the scope of just songwriting, but that goes with everything, you know, on the sound recording um, side as well. And on the, uh, the performance side as well, you know, get to know SoCan, CMRA, Sound Exchange, um, you know, get to know what these organizations do, you know, ReSound, MROC. Um, there's not enough time to talk about them all. And again, you know, reach out if you have any uh, questions and you want to get, you know, dive deeply into that kind of stuff, but, um, but register stuff because you're not going to get paid unless you, unless you register. Yeah. And I, I've got a question actually um, on a lot of songs where, you know, it's been a number of people contributed uh, it lists their sort of publishing, but it's their own publishing companies that they've set up. Um, yeah. Can you give a little bit of insight how that works? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, some people never do that. Other songwriters, um, especially as you get a little bit more advanced in your career, um, may set up a publishing entity. And so the way that works is um, if you're, you know, publishing entity, and if you can show that you own or control, I think it's, you know, five, the publisher's share of five compositions. Um, uh, basically what happens is, you know, the writer's share of any performance royalties go directly to the writer, the individual, Matthew Gorman, and, um, you know, your respective publisher's share of those performance royalties will go to the publishing entity you created. So, you know, Matt Gorman Publishing Co. or, or whatever. Um, some different reasons for doing that. Sometimes uh, people do that for tax planning purposes. Um, you know, sometimes it's better for, you know, publishing income to go into an incorporated company, we'll say, or a separate entity for tax planning purposes. And, um, you know, that way when you're doing your taxes, um, you know, personally, you're only taxed at your, your personal marginal rate. Um, which if you're a big um, songwriter and writer with a lot of you know, royalties coming in, your personal marginal rate is going to be a whole lot lower if you exclude your respective publisher's share of performance royalties, for example. Um, but it's pretty easy to do if you're at the stage where you want to create a publishing entity. Um, just go through the SoCan website and, and, and it's really easy to navigate. Again, you, um, you know, you got to show that you own or control five the publisher share five respective compositions. Um, normally you do a short and sweet agreement between yourself individually and your publishing entity where, you know, I, Matthew Gorman hereby assign my respective publisher's share of my performance royalties to Matthew Gorman Publishing Co. Sign me, done, submit it to SoCan. They'll send you sort of some paperwork, you sign it up. And then um, bada bing, bada boom, you've got a publishing entity and, and the name has to be um, original as well. You can't have a publishing entity that's um, too um, confusingly similar, I think, to another entity. Um, but that's lots more we could talk about with pub publishing entities. Um, and, and that even kind of like scratch, like we didn't even really, um, sorry, I got this other call here, I gotta get rid of. Um, we didn't really even get into, I guess, the, the, the notional difference, I guess, between the writer's share and publisher's share. Um, which again, we can maybe another session or if people have questions about that, get in touch with me. But when we're talking about, you know, performance uh, royalties um, that come into a songwriter, um, that's, you know, typically while well, it is split between, you know, the so-called writer's share and the so-called 
a publisher share. If you are a songwriter and you don't have a publishing entity and you've never signed a, a publishing deal with a big publisher, um, well, good news, pretty easy, you'll get everything. <laughs> um, you'll get both 100% of the writer's share, you'll get 100% of the publisher's share, um, no issues, no deal, uh, no, no big deal. Um, obviously, as you add maybe a publishing entity into your music business down the road, maybe it's an arrangement where the writer gets 100% of its publisher, of its writer's share, and the, the music publisher you're working with gets 100% of the publisher's share, or maybe 50% of the publisher's share. Um, that's that's an aspect of the publishing business or the music business where people can get confused pretty quick. So um, hopefully that made sense for folks. But if, if you have more questions again about how publishing companies work, you know how publishing money is is divided, um, the difference between the different kind of publishing agreements because there's a whole lot of different variations of those agreements. I'm always happy to to chat about that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because like the whole songwriting is so entwined with publishing and such it's like different levels of protection is what you really need to be worried about when you're going through it. And best practice is always make sure you have the discussion early, not later on. Yeah, for sure. Going back to the, thanks for keeping me sort of grounded here on the topic at hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Key theme here, I think is, is have those discussions upfront about songwriting. If you're, you know, if you're writing your songs with other um, with other authors, uh, co-authors, make sure you you figure out everything up front. And we talked a little bit about you know the difference between split sheets and and more fulsome co-writing agreements. You know, obviously in a co-writing agreement, you know it will cover the splits. We also talked about administration rights with respect to um, co-writing agreements. You know, other things you get into are you know the the likeness and image of songwriters. You know, so for example, if you're you know if you're a writer and you're writing with another well-known songwriter, maybe you want the right to promote that song by saying, Hey, look who I wrote with. And, you know, a Taylor Swift, maybe you've heard of her and here's, you know, here's her picture. Um, here's her bio information. Um, you know, sometimes there's, you know, indemnity provisions within these agreements where, you know, where essentially the other songwriter and you are, are promising that what you're bringing to the table is original because, you know, Hey, wouldn't it be a bad day if, you know, five years down the road, that banger that you guys wrote, you, you, you realize, well, you know, Unfortunately, my co-writer kind of lifted that chorus from that other well-known song, and now we're both getting sued, and that's a bad day. And you know, publishers are getting sued, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, uh, so there's a whole lot of more, um, I guess, coverage clauses, information, I guess, within a, a standard kind of co-author agreement, as opposed to just the split sheet that we talked about before. So again, if people want to get more into that or asking more questions about the differences and whether it makes sense, um, get, you know, let me know. Oh, man, you made me really think of some of the stories, like uh, what came to mind was Led Zeppelin, how um, the songwriter credits have been uh, edited after releases. So yeah, uh, if anybody wants to check it out, you could YouTube search. Uh, I think there was a Howard Stern show, but there's somebody about like, literally almost every Led Zeppelin songs lifted from somewhere else. Yeah. And th that same thing happened, I think with um, what comes to mind is uh, Tom Petty and Sam Smith um, uh, won't back down. I think that was one where that was sort of settled uh, after uh, was settled out of court, but I think Tom Petty was ultimately, you know, credited uh, as a songwriter on that Sam Smith song uh, because it was so similar. That, infringement we can get into we can get into that another day that's that's a super fun topic that i'm always happy to 
to talk about, you know, Led Zeppelin and Taurus and all that stuff. And the Marvin Gaye example, uh, there, there's a whole lot of really fun U.S. infringement cases that we could you know, talk about for, uh, for another hour, probably. Yeah, but, but literally, uh, it's interesting that the songwriter credits get edited after the fact. I just want to ask, when it does get edited, um, is that retroactive as well? Like, do, do they actually recoup past fees? Yeah, I, it's a good question, Daryl. My, my, my assumption or guess is that it's on a case-by-case basis, and it's whatever the parties have agreed to. Um, you know, you see a lot of these, you know, you see some of these uh, cases play out in court, typically like 99% probably never reach a court. And it's always some sort of settlement. My guess, though, is that in those kind of situations, there's always some sort of, you know, back pay or retroactive pay. There's probably a whole lot of lawyers and accountants involved looking through, you know, really fun royalty statements to see well, how much has been made and all that kind of stuff. And you know, with the view of trying to get, you know, the, the songwriter that was that was wronged or cut out of the deal, probably, you know, their side is is trying to get them as as um, you know the biggest piece of the pie as as humanly possible and as close to maybe, you know, if it was supposed to be 50-50, as close to that as possible. So I can't speak to that having never been involved in one, but that's sort of my guess as to, as to what what's what's being done behind the scenes and sort of a, a good thorough uh, settlement agreement, probably. Yeah. It's 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 a crazy thing, and, and you know, to it's already uh, four o'clock here. But uh, just sort of like final sort of statements, you know, it's really just there's so many different types of stories where if there was a conversation at the start, it would have just fixed everything. And uh, I, I know a lot of creators and songwriters are in it for creating art and producing songs. Uh, and the business side might not have been like the first um, focal, focal point in the, their career, but it just sort of says how important it is. Uh, do you have any last uh, leaving comments, Matt? Totally. Um, Daryl, yeah, what you said earlier, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Not, not really, Daryl. I think we covered a lot of stuff here. The only, I, I know we're um, uh, past, well, five Halifax time, four um, Eastern time. I'll just say, um, um, you know, I love what I do. This is a fascinating topic for me, especially... Um, it's also one that, you know, I've spoken to, you know, veteran songwriters, and I'm shocked to sometimes hear that, that even they haven't fully grasped or the basics of this. So I really urge people to do as much reading as possible online. I've got some articles on my website, oceantimemusic.ca. Um, I published a legal guide for musicians about three, four years ago that covers um, copyright in the song. Um, and obviously, feel free to reach out. Um, my email address is matt at oceantimemusic.ca, and you can check me out at that. Check me out um, on Instagram um, at Ocean Town Music. Oh, thanks, Zach. There you go. It's on top of the links and um, and and um, Instagram stuff. I typically try as much as possible to kind of post music law relevant music law issues for people, uh, whether it's around songwriting or management deals or record deals or or whatever. So again, feel free to get in touch if you have any questions. And um, at the end of the day, just have fun writing songs. You've been listening to the Indie Weekly podcast. Be sure to visit IndieWeek.com for all the information on the conferences for 2022. Screen by Screen, Music and Tech in February. Indie 101, Music and Business Education in May. Music Pro Summit, high-level music industry insight from professionals in September. And Indie Week brings it all together in November. Act now and get early bird pricing on an all-access pass to all four conferences presented by Indie Week. Details and much more at IndieWeek.com. Thanks for listening.